Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Josh Noble. Today we're discussing Moneyland, a book that describes where the world's crooks and kleptocrats hide their money. Caroline Binham spoke to Oliver Bullough, the book's author, about his attempts to track down the lost billions and why the problem urgently requires a transnational solution. Oliver, when you're not writing, you organise an alternative type of sightseeing trip called the London Kleptocracy Tours, where visitors can see where various despots and oligarchs and conmen have bought London mansions and penthouses. It struck me, reading Moneyland, that the book is almost like that tour writ large across the globe. And you introduce a kind of parallel world where wealthy citizens can choose Maltese passports, English libel, American privacy, Panamanian shell companies, Jersey trusts and Liechtenstein foundations, to quote some of the book. How did you come up with that concept? This idea of Moneyland came to me when I was in Ukraine, actually, after the revolution in 2014. Ukraine had been very badly, still is, very badly affected by corruption. It had been looted by its president who had just fled the country. And the sort of fruits of his looting were just lying around and you could pick them up on the street almost. It was so obvious what had been happening. And the more I looked into what had been happening, the more I realised that this wasn't a Ukraine issue, that this man and his circle of cronies had been using all the tricks of the international financial system to hide their money. Essentially, they'd been exploiting the many loopholes that exist in the gaps between regulations between different countries to erase the trace of their crimes. And that's when the idea of Moneyland came to me, is essentially, if you are rich enough and your money is mobile enough, your assets are mobile enough, you can pick and mix which regulations you follow. You can structure your life in such a way that, you know, your children are at school in Britain, your passport is from St Kitts and Nevis or Malta, your assets are in Switzerland but owned via a trust in the Marshall Islands or whatever. I mean, it can be anything, but the point is you don't exist anywhere. You're in so many different places that you're in the cloud. You manage to live in this country, Moneyland, which underlays the entire world economy. It's the dark side of globalisation, really. And the kleptocracy tours were our attempt to highlight this. I mean, a group of friends put them together because so often when this money emerges from this sort of subterranean kingdom, Moneyland, when it pops up again into the sunlight to washed clean, it pops up in London to buy top-end property because this is, you know, a world city and it's a place where an awful lot of crooks and thieves of the title of my book like to enjoy themselves. They like to spend their money because it's safe here. And you mentioned Ukraine there. It does seem reading the book that it holds particular sway for you. And Viktor Yanukovych, the former president, seems to come across as a particular bogeyman of yours. Why is that? I mean, I'm a former Soviet specialist. I'm a Russian speaker. So I've always spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union. And I first went there just as a naive university graduate with no particular plan, but just wanting to see how democratic transformation was working. And I suppose, you know, the failure of democratic transformation in Russia and in other countries in the former Soviet Union, has been one of the great disappointments of our age. You know, Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, liberal democracy won. Everything was going to be great. Russia was going to become Denmark, effectively. I exaggerate, but not very much. And that didn't happen. In fact, not only did that not happen, but the whole former Soviet empire became this corruption-plagued disaster area from a governance perspective. And so it was trying to figure out why that was happening that really drove a lot of the investigation. And then what was really interesting was realising that the techniques of corruption that I'd identified were universal. They were being used not just by Russians, Ukrainians, Azeris, Kazakhs, but also by Angolans, by Malaysians, by Brazilians. You know, this trick of you steal money in a poor country, you hide it offshore 
and you spend it in a rich country. This is happening all over the world. It's happening in China, it's happening in Nigeria, you name it, it's happening. One of the things that you seem to argue in the book is why this matters. And it seems for you that corruption is not just a symbol of a broken society, but its root cause. Do you think that's a fair summary? Yes. I mean, I think inequality is a problem for any attempt to build a functioning democratic system. If you have inequality as severe as, for example, it is in Russia, which is the most unequal major economy in the world, it's impossible to create a functioning democratic system when so much power and so much wealth is in the hands of such a small group of people. But there's a sort of a separate story to that as well, which is that possibly in the West, particularly in the UK, you know, we may feel like, well, that's a problem over there. That's not a problem here. But actually, that money flows across borders as if they're not there. It ends up polluting our system as much as it pollutes theirs. It buys influence here. It buys property here. It buys assets here. And these people, they don't suddenly become social democrats when they get off the plane at Heathrow or Biggin Hill or whichever private airport they're using. They don't suddenly get transformed from a crook into an honest person. They're still a crook. And having crooks buying influence and property in our country inevitably pollutes our own country as well. And the more they buy, the more polluted we become. So if we want to preserve the integrity of our democratic system, then it's very important that we prevent this money from coming here. Because in the long term, we are selling them the rope with which they'll hang us. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that there's clearly a lot of what we would call shoe leather reporting behind it. And you personally go to the archive department in St. Kitts. You're the one talking with mothers in a Ukrainian hospital where literally bribes are the difference between life and death for their children. Was that important to you taking us on that journey with you? Yeah, I mean, that's why I love doing the job I do. I love being able to go and find things out. I love being able to go to places I wouldn't otherwise have the chance to go to. And I love trying to find ways of telling complicated issues in stories that might be harrowing to read, but which are easy to understand. You know, corruption is essentially about the theft of trust. You have people who are in a position of trust. They've been elevated to run people's lives in a government and they are abusing that trust. That's what corruption is. And trying to find a way of telling that story in a way that makes sense to anyone. If you tell that story via taking bribes from the parents of desperately ill children, well, I mean, you know, that's pretty powerful. And also, I'm not going to pretend I didn't enjoy going to the Caribbean. You know, previously, most of my travelling for work involved going to Arctic Russia, which I love, but it's really cold. And <laughs> oh, there's a load of mosquitoes and it's a very hard to get to. I mean, the Caribbean is gorgeous. You know, these were places I would have wanted to go anyway. St. Kitts sells passports. Nevis is a major offshore financial dodgy centre. I would have needed to go there anyway, but it was made a lot easier by the fact that also it's St Kitts and Nevis. Well, the tourist boards of those respective countries perhaps will forgive you. Well, I hope so. I mean, I fear their financial regulators won't like me, but I certainly had a lot of fun there and I spent a lot of money in the beach bars when I finished talking or failing to talk to their respective financial regulators. So that sounds a perk of writing the book. What did you find the hardest part? Well, there are several things that were difficult. It is very hard hearing stories from people whose children are being essentially held hostage by corrupt officials. It's very difficult. And to find a way of honouring the trust that they've put in you by telling you these stories, because, you know, they know that they are risking their children if they speak out. It's hard for them. So that's obviously difficult. And I hope I did that. But the other part of it is dealing with the libel lawyers of the rich and unscrupulous is very difficult. There's one story which I allude to in the book, but I can't tell fully. It took me two years to research a story about one particular ex-Soviet businessman, in inverted commas. And the film that never came to pass. Well, there were two stories. There's one, the film that never came to pass, and one, the story that never came to pass. 
in this specifically the story, you know, this is a person who'd stolen a fortune. It was being spent in the West by his offspring. It was an absolute perfect example of how Moneyland works, this dynamic of stealing it, hiding it and spending it. And, you know, I was two days away from publishing this story. It took me two years of work. And then it was spiked by the lawyers because the problem was it was felt that connecting these children who were you know, in their publicish positions in the West with this man in the former Soviet Union would be defamatory to the children. And it's impossible to not be fooled with rage about that when you know this person's crimes would never otherwise be exposed by anyone. And so I did end up with a very bleak view of the way British libel law works and by the way a lot of British libel lawyers work. You've completed, as it were, this global tour of dodgy jurisdictions. Are you able to come up with your own index of dirty money? Which is the jurisdiction that you think is the dirtiest for one reason or another? I think it's very important to get away from the idea of looking at the world in terms of jurisdictions. I actually think this is a harmful way of looking at the world because the problem is caused by the fact that money doesn't respect jurisdictions. Money goes anywhere it likes. Transparency International have the Corruption Perceptions Index. They rank countries by how corrupt they are. It is an actively misleading way of looking at the world because if you are a Ukrainian politician and you steal money in Ukraine, you launder it through Cyprus, you hide it behind a Marshall Islands trust and then you spend it on property in London, where's the corruption? The corruption is by its nature transnational. It's in Moneyland. It isn't in any one jurisdiction. And that's a really important message to get across, that the world needs to act transnationally to combat this transnational problem. And it is a giant problem. You know, according to Gabriel Zuckman at the University of California in Berkeley, who's done research specifically looking at the anomalies in international investment statistics caused by this dark money, caused by offshore, you know, it's between 8 and 10% of all the assets in the world are out there somewhere, but we don't know where. It's a huge amount of money. You know, that's what makes Moneyland the third biggest economy in the world. Acting unilaterally cannot be the solution because the money doesn't act on a national scale. It operates transnationally by its nature. We need to act in a coordinated manner across jurisdictions. And if there were any one message that came out of the book, it's the recognition that for a transnational problem, we need a transnational solution. Well, let's talk about solutions for a little bit, because I felt that that was the one area where I wanted to hear a little bit more from you. Admittedly, it's quite an intractable problem that we're trying to solve here. But in the final chapter, you seem to agitate for a modern day Bretton Woods, which was the post-war international system of monetary and exchange rate management that was essentially scrapped in the 1970s. Advocating for a modern day version is a little contentious, not least, I think, because you concede that the original required a certain disdain for democracy and there was a technocratic elite, which is hardly a rallying cry for 2018. You're right. I advocated a modern day Bretton Woods, not in the sense that I want us to go back to a world of capital controls and Keynesian high minded, a democratic behaviour. What I would like is that degree of strategic grappling with the problem. This issue that a growing amount of money is held somewhere, anywhere, nowhere, and that that problem will keep growing until it sort of drowns the world is just not front and centre in our discourse, and it really should be. We need to get together as a world, or certainly as a G20, to address this problem and look at how we can solve this before it solves us. It will require countries getting together and working together in a way that might sound undemocratic. But what this is, is essentially creating the rules that allow democracy to happen. If you don't have a fair system, then you can't have fair competition. It requires countries acting together. And I suppose, yes, so you might see that as being undemocratic in the same way that you might see the way that the G20 works as undemocratic. But I don't think 
that there's any other way of operating. This has to be engaged with on the transnational level for it to have any kind of prospect of success. What those solutions would be, I think adequate enforcement is key. I mean, anyone who's looked at the Danske Bank scandal will see that enforcement is zero to non-existent across much of Europe. The resources that are made available to the UK enforcement bodies are pathetically inadequate. The NCA and the SFO between them share about £70 million to try and deal with what's £190 billion worth of money laundered through the city every year. That is clearly inadequate and that should be dealt with. I mean, that's one thing. But secondly, we need to look at our regulatory systems. They are not fit for purpose. In the UK, we have, I think, 24 different anti-money laundering regulators, including among them the Archbishop of Canterbury's office. That's clearly a system that's not been designed. That's a system that's just happened. We need to recognise that this requires some kind of rational treatment. And the third thing is we need to know who owns what. Companies, shell companies, are being used all over the world to disguise the identity of crooks and thieves in a way that they were not designed for. If you think about what a company is designed for, it's designed to provide limited liability, to essentially socialise the risk of entrepreneurial activity. That is an entirely valid thing, in fact, very useful and important thing that a company does. A company was never designed to provide anonymity so you could buy a house in Knightsbridge. That's not what they're for. So why are they being used for that? And again, that debate isn't happening. If people need anonymity, well, we need to provide them with anonymity in a rational, straightforward way. But for everyone, not just people who can afford it. That should be for anyone who needs it. And everyone else, if you want us as a society to provide you with limited liability, then you've got to say who you are. I mean, it's extraordinary that essentially an insurance product would be being provided anonymously. You wouldn't get to insure your house anonymously, would you? I mean, it's very peculiar. These debates are not being had. And it sounds sort of very kind of wonky. It sounds like accountancy. But actually, you know, the sums of money involved are enormous. The kind of sums that would dwarf the potential of almost any government. You mentioned the statistic, $32 trillion, I think, there's somewhere in the book. It's a huge amount of money. I mean, again, it's very hard to say. It's dark matter. You know, you can only see it in, as well with dark matter on its effect on other things because it is hidden and well hidden. But it's a huge amount of money and it is growing all the time. I mean, global financial integrity estimates that the amount of money stolen from poor countries, what we used to call the third world or the developing world and stashed in developed countries, is more than $1 trillion every year. It's one of those numbers like a million, well, it's big. But how big is a trillion? Well, if you were to count to a trillion, it would take you 35,000 years almost. It's an extraordinarily large number. And that's how much is being stolen every year. And so the more that gets stolen the more weight there will be acting against anyone trying to reform the system, which means that it will never be easier than it is right now. And that's, I think, quite a positive message. Finally, one thing that I don't think you touched on largely because I think the book was written before recent events developed has been the worsening relations between the UK and Russia. Do you think that might prove fertile ground for your next book? It might do. It is very interesting the extent to which the attack on Salisbury has focused minds across Westminster and Whitehall about what needs to be done to address the problem of Russian money and the anonymous owned fortunes which are sloshing through the UK. But I don't think that that sort of political imperative and the harsh words, they haven't been matched with any kind of policy suggestions which are in any way appropriate to the scale of the challenge we're facing. Maybe post-Brexit they'll come, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean, it might be a subject for the book. I would like to do a next book on solutions and specifically on the people who are forcing through solutions. There are some astonishingly imaginative, brave 
lawyers and activists and people all over the world who are coming up with clever ways of fighting back against Moneyland because it's very hard to fight against. It's amorphous. It, you know, it, it's sort of like the thing in the horror film. It, it's everywhere and nowhere and it looks like an ordinary person and suddenly it's the thing. That's the same with Moneyland. But there are people who are coming up with ways of fighting back against it and, I mean, they deserve recognition on their own right because they're awesome. But also I think if we study their methods and their techniques, we can create a sort of a guide. You know, how do you resist this? It's one of the great challenges of our time, which is the inequality an anonymous wealth that is fighting back against democracy, you know, democracy on the retreat. And this is one of the key reasons for it, that kleptocrats, crooks, thieves are able to steal so much money and keep it. And that is something we need to really mobilise against. Oliver Bullough, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. That was Oliver Bullough talking to Caroline Billum. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another news feature next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.